0: Sit before we begin. Oh, that's delicious. This is a fabulous idea. I like citrusy. Ooh, and crisp. Drinking Sauvignon Blanc while we'll, uh, chatting with the folk.
2: What could be better? <laughs>
0: Welcome, everybody, to Uncorking a Story. My name is Mike Carlin, and I'm very excited about today's guest. Uh, her name is Shelly Zalas, and uh, I, I want to let you know I did receive some uh, good constructive criticism from some of you that I don't take the time to properly introduce my guests. So uh, I do want to thank you for that, and to rectify it, I'm going to tell you that Shelley Zalis is the CEO of Ipsos Open Thinking Exchange, and she really is a true innovator in the marketing research business. I first met Shelley when I was working for Unilever and she was invited to speak at an offsite meeting, and I remember during that meeting she broke two pretty big rules during her presentation. The first was during the course of her presentation she told us how old she was, and the second is that she wound up quoting Yoda on one of her slides. Now most women don't do those kinds of things. But then again, as I got to know Shelley's Alice a lot more after that meeting, most women are not Shelley's Alice. Um, I caught up with her today, uh, April tenth, at uh, the private lounge of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in uh, New York City, overlooking Central Park, and um, we had a really interesting conversation. I'm going to warn you ahead of time that uh, it does get a little inside research. We do talk a lot about a lot of industry things. Uh, between the market research business and the online marketing business uh, because she's been an innovator in both. But uh, her story as a whole is is very interesting. It comes full circle. And I suppose if I had to use one word to summarize Shelly, it's got to be passion. Um, she's, she's one of the most passionate people I've ever met in my life. When she gets an idea stuck in her head and that idea keeps her up at night, you, you better watch out. Because she will pursue it uh, until it becomes a reality and um, is only motivated more by somebody telling her that it can't be done. So I hope you enjoy this uh, interview. Uh, Please give me uh, any feedback that you might have. I welcome it. And uh, just to uh, let you know, we do have a sponsor for today's podcast. Very excited about that. The sponsor is Isagenix. uh, And I'll uh, let you know that if you're looking for a simple way to more balanced nutrition, Without sacrificing taste for convenience, I urge you to try the IsoGenics line of products. And you can learn more at com. So that's that. And uh, now uh, let's find what Shelly is up to. So this is... Um... The, the name of the podcast is Uncorking a Story because I go around and I look for people who have very interesting stories to tell whether they're business leaders or in the entertainment industry uh, local kind of local heroes and you know since you have done what you've done I thought that you'd be a great uh, a great subject for, for this
1: okay so what I have just, I done though like, what, what area done? of what I've done <laughs>
0: that's, that's, that's well, what are you most proud of what are you most proud of what you've done that's a loaded question your kids aren't listening.
1: Mm. But you know what it's a it's a really great question because I mean, I'm proud of a lot of things that I've done. especially, that's the, especially that's the getting Franciscan when, says, getting uh, when got it got doesn't exist. exist.
0: So we have so so uncorking a story, uh, the whole uncorking aspect was all these interviews happen over wine. so this was a appropriate uh, appropriate movement. Well,
1: right? many glasses of wine do the stories get really good? Um, you know, I think there were a few moments of truth in my life in business that maybe I'm the most proud of. So I'll start from my business career. What I'm the most proud of is those aha moments for myself um, that made me do things that I never thought I would do. And one was when I just came to work one day, was sitting in a boardroom with three men that were the three leaders of the company, And I expressed an opinion about where I believed research would go. And my opinion was very different than theirs. And, you know, they were talking about, you know, still the whole world of telephone and, and, you know, recruiting people. And I said, well, maybe we need to think about things a little differently. I think the Internet is going to be, you know, a very good way of engaging with people. And what
0: what year was this?
1: I would say this was in
0: 1998
1: uh, to com- 1999.
0: And, 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 and because I think this, this story does come full circle, um, the company you were working for at the time was what? Who was uh, it? ASI. ASI, so, okay.
1: I was working for ASI, and it was a, a really great company. Yeah. But I was sitting in this room, and you know, I was talking about the fact that You know, I really believed that the Internet was going to be the game changer, and they all agreed. But what they said, rightfully so, was they just got acquired by Ipsos, and their focus had to be international first, because ASI was a U.S.-based business, and of course it had to go global before it could do anything else. And I went home that night, and, and I didn't disagree, of course, you know, it was a business that, you know, any business that's so successful should go global. But it bothered me that I wasn't going to be able to win with this idea. You know, it was such a big idea for me, and my heart was pounding so fast that I thought, well, why should I not be able to do what I want to do? Because the three people ahead of me have their priorities, and what I'm interested in is never going to happen because it's going to be bottom of the totem pole because I have to prioritize according to a business, you know, goal. Which of course you have to do today. And that night I went to sleep and my heart started pounding so hard, and I started falling more and more in love with the idea of pioneering a way of engaging with people on the internet that I went in and resigned the next day and decided I had to follow my heart.
0: So you you were in a situation where you you could have so easily have woken up and, and just accepted the fact that you couldn't do what you want to do and let ASI do what ASI had to do. You chose to resign without a plan?
1: It, it wasn't that I was resigned to saying that when you're building a business, you have to do the right thing for the business. The right thing for ASI was to build a global organization.
2: Sure.
1: But it was that moment of truth where I said, I, that priority of going global isn't mine, my dream, and I wouldn't have thought of this idea had it not have been that choice that I had to make at the time. Because I probably would have waited a long time to think about it. It was, uh, it was a turning moment where I said, I'm going to have to build it then. If it's going to be no one's priority, because every traditional research company's focus is going to have to be going global, who's then going to build the next generation of this online thing that doesn't exist today? And I decided, I'm going to have to do it. And it was from that moment that I decided that change only happens if you decide to change yourself. I raised my hand for myself to say, I can't be uh, waiting for something to happen. I'm going to have to do it myself. And so I did. I left not having a clue what I was going to do with that. And I was going to pioneer building an online research business. And so then I had to do it. So how did you do it? I mean, how did
0: you go from working for this big company, very safe, um, doing what they had to do, their own priorities. How do you then, so what's that first day like when you wake up and you don't have an office to go to, but yet you have this dream of what you want to accomplish?
1: Um, I had no idea. I have no MBA, I have no business background. I only had a dream that became this passion. Like I didn't realize I was so passionate about it, but of course when someone tells you you can't do something, you want to do it more and more. And I dream in pictures, and I started really thinking about this whole new model of how you um, can engage with people. And I closed my eyes, and you know, I thought about telephone as RDD, you know, how do you, from a Yellow Pages, pull all these people in the columns so that you can get a representative population. So I started thinking, well, it's sort of the same thing from the Internet. You have to be able to recruit people from all over the place, and then put them into this, you know, what I call a blender. Blend them all up to make this representative population. The only problem was there was no representation on the internet. It was only wealthy old men with broadband connections, and it was in the days of the at-home network. I don't know. If yeah, remember I remember that.
2: Absolutely, it was
1: all you know, broadband, and the explanation for me with broadband connection was you have to imagine you know it's a high speed it's a big fat coaxial pipeline fat pipeline that you can push a lot of shit through and you know the the analogy that i got was imagine you're driving on a freeway and when the freeway's empty you go really fast but if it's packed, you can only go slow. Sure. So if you got little lines, you can only go slow. If you got big fat lines, you can go faster. But if those big fat lines are busy, you still can only go as fast as you can go. And so, you know, I thought to myself, first of all, how am I going to build this representative population? And so I went from website to website to website to teach them market research and said, you guys could be a potential great source for sample, right? And they loved it because they didn't have an ad revenue model at the time. Because this was all really in the new days. You know, websites didn't have a model. So here I was giving them, you know, dollars towards using their people and building a whole new ecosystem, right? And so we started building this and blending so i could go to you know cnet for a business sample and i could go to you know different websites for different kind of populations and then of course i worked with the traditional sample companies greenfield and harris and aol and ssi and i will never forget this either i thought to myself and you know sometimes what is the expression um it's a necessity of mother nature when you're desperate. Uh,
0: uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Yes.
1: Necessity is the mother of invention. This is exactly how some of my inventions came because I, I had to be clever too. So just imagine, Greenfield was like one of the leaders in the, the telephone panels and they were starting to migrate and they had the biggest one of the biggest online populations mm-hmm. to use. And so when I did a deal with them, I thought to myself, well, what if one day they decide to no longer sell something? If I just was exclusive with them, I'd be in big trouble, right? And SSI, when I went to SSI, they said to me, you know, we can't do these kinds of surveys because we're going to, you know, it's, it's not good for our panelists. Or if we do multimedia surveys, you know, our panelists aren't ready for this. And I remember saying to SSI, and I will never forget this, I said to SSI many, many, many years ago, I said, well, then consider me your best friend and your worst enemy. You know, I said, you might hate me today by pushing your panel to do this, but one day you're gonna love me. Because if your panelists can't do multimedia, you're gonna be out of business soon. So I'm just trying to help you build for the worst common denominator, which is gonna be multimedia, you know, surveys on steroids on the internet one day, I hope. So maybe I'll be your best friend because I helped you get there faster. But I'll never forget that comment, that their panelists can only do these very simple kind of studies. And they were gonna keep building from there. And then I remember, you know, going to Harris and as I was doing these kinds of deals, you know, this is a couple of years later, I always said to myself, I can never be dependent on one sample source number one. I also one sample source isn't representative. One sample source might reward people with birthday cards, you know, and, and engage them. And another might be, you know, some kind of points. And so I built this blender and put everybody in so I wouldn't be dependent on anybody or anything. And this is today how we, we blend a sample. Yeah. Now we might call it river, we might call it, you know, you know, a lot of different things, but it is a representative online population that is an amalgamation of um, people from all different sources. And You know, what I always talk about, and I wrote a blog on this, um, was it was called One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. I was teaching at Wharton in the business school one day, and I was trying to explain how I had to think through the online ecosystem, you know, how I really pioneered this whole sampling thing. And I didn't do it intentionally. It sort of just started happening and evolving and then making a lot more sense. And I started talking about how, you know, in the ocean, an ocean has an ecosystem. you got big fish, little fish, red fish, blue fish. And I said, it's the same thing. I said, it's just like in the online ecosystem. You need people from all different kinds of places. You need targeted samples. You need people from social you know, uh, samples so that they're you know, coming from the Facebooks of the world today as we were evolving. And that's how you really get this represented population. And I actually took the business class from Wharton as I was talking about red, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. And I said, you know what? I want to go walk over to your library because the library had a little kids section. And I took the book out, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. And we all sat down and we started reading this book. We sat on these little tiny tables on the floor and we started reading these, the book, the Dr. Seuss book, one fish, two fish. And it was just so true. You need all kinds of fish in the ocean for the ocean to be what it is and it's the same thing you need all kinds of top populations into you know the ecosystem to really build a representative you know online population
0: you guys have a little nap time after that in the <laughs> library sitting on the carpet <laughs> no, squares did, we
1: did get snacks though okay oh, snacks are good we snacks did get snacks um, so it was um, it was really a phenomenal time as we were building that and then you know when I was building the platform um, There was a guy, a 21-year-old that I'll never forget because I never thought people would understand what I was talking about unless I could visualize it. You know, I could sit here and tell you, oh, I needed to build this sort of like website that would recruit people from all different places to look at content and then give me their opinions, and I want to migrate this whole survey business. So I had to build it, right? And I used to do a lot of website testing, so usability and and navigation testing and that's a whole other story in and of itself of the evolution from there of how we moved from doing 200 page websites for tied laundry detergent to um, microsites where we found that people were going to 200 page websites what they wanted was just those five pages of stain detective. You know, how do you remove the stain? They became destination. And the epiphany was we don't create programs to advertise in. Why are we creating websites to advertise in? Let's just migrate our advertising to other people's websites. Hence the IV forming and we started creating standards and models for advertising. And the next iteration obviously was how do we now use this whole, you know, online digital solution to engage people in answering questions. And there were some really important moments of truth that happened along the way too, um, where I remember being at a, an industry event where we kept talking about how, oh, it, the online, the internet is never going to work. Why? Because people online don't tell the truth; they lie. And you know that people online lie. So how will we ever know that it's you know the real people? And I remember standing up in the audience and saying, you know, well, they lie relative to what? I said, what percent of the people on the telephone lie? So we're only saying that it's because of the Internet, because you can't see someone's face, that you don't know if they're authentic. Yet... If you're saying that 70% of the people in surveys online today, this is in the early days, don't tell the truth, what percentage of people on the telephone don't, is it also 70%? Then you can't say that it's an internet issue.
0: Right. It's an industry. You know? It could be, if, if there is an issue, it's an industry issue, it's yeah. not a medium issue.
1: Uh, and I said, and by the way, there's an NF 5 in this study, I mean seriously, I said we got to hold back and not look at why not, but give this opportunity and this mechanism the opportunity to be why yes. Why are we always looking for the defensive mechanism of why this isn't going to be? And why we should you know, be so defensive and run away from it because we're afraid of what it could be? Why can't we let it have legs to live and breathe? and do some fair comparisons, and then look at all the wonderful things that it brings to us that we can't get in any other way. And that became sort of my voice, is why yes? Why is this potentially, why could this potentially be something phenomenal? And then I remember, and this is how I really got into the business, I built this website, if you will, in a basement with a guy named Trevor Kaufman. He was my web developer. He had a little company called KPE. We went into our basement, and we built this thing. And I remember saying to him, I don't have any money to do this. I said, but if this works, I'll give you a million bucks. And so we went, and we started building. And lo and behold, I brought the idea to Nielsen. And Nielsen said, we love this. We want to play. How much do you need? I said, I need a million dollars. And they said, I said, because well, I, I need to give this 21-year-old kid a million bucks for believing for putting his heart and soul into working with me, this nutcase on this crazy idea that nobody believed in, no one thought it would ever be representative, it didn't exist, so it can't be. And I always said, it can't be until we make it happen. And he believed. And it was his passion and his belief. And we had so much fun. Even though we, we were having fun together, we were you know, supporting each other that this one day would be a dream. And you know, I also remember, that I decided that if I don't build this online system for the hardest common denominator, challenge myself to how, you know, building for the impossible, I would never be able to win the game. Mm -hmm. And so I decided what industry in the world, I come from the package goods world, what industry in the world needs information very quickly, has content that is, you know, uh, very private that mm. needs to be secure, and that needs information, you know, incredibly quickly? And so I decided it's the movie industry. I knew nothing about the movie industry. I didn't know a damn thing about the movie industry. The only thing I knew about the movie industry was a movie could be made or broken in a given weekend. That they have upwards of 20 pieces of content that you get on a Friday night has to be digitized in a second, uploaded and answers have to come back by Monday morning because they have to make decisions that quickly and that there was only one company in the world that did movie research that had a monopoly, that did mall intercept research and I remember thinking, okay, that's the industry I'm going to go after.
0: So let's slide little back for a second. Okay. You you have an idea of what the future is. The company you're working for says, good idea, we can't fight it. You go and build it. There, there, there are three critical steps that we've talked about. So the first is um, to figure out the sampling aspect. How do you get a, a great, wide variety of people, a representative group of people, into whatever research platform is that you need to build, right? So you have to find the people to take it and make sure they're good people and they're representative. You solve that. Second thing is you find this guy, Trevor, offer him a, uh, a promise for believing in you to build the platform. So those are the first two steps that we've talked about. The third is, okay, now who are you going to target to actually use the platform and you settle in on the movie industry? There is uh, little competition, uh, and and, and the way they're doing it is somewhat antiquated. Do I have it right so far?
1: Uh, You have it right. However, what you have wrong is the fact that there's only one competitor in the category was because they had a monopoly and no one was able to bring a second company in because they were so entrenched for thirty years in this one company that No other competitor has ever been able to survive. So it wasn't like I said, oh, that's okay. There's only one guy in the business doing, you know, movie research. This is going to be cake because, you know, it was, there was only one guy because no one could break the monopoly um, to get their foot in the door.
0: So how do you break the monopoly?
1: So I had... I had no idea that there wasn't enough. Thank God I didn't really know how hard it was. I sort of just said, oh, this is sort of like what you just said. This isn't so bad. There's only one player. That's crazy. And it was mall intercept. And by the way, I didn't have any answers to how to do movie research online. And I also didn't have a representative population because I didn't even know what the data was going to say. Right? So I remember with chutzpah, deciding, Well, and one of my mottos in life is, if you don't ask, you don't know, right? So I called the Warner Brothers. And I said, you know, I asked the receptionist, who's the research director at Warner Brothers. And it was a guy, you know, named Dan Rosen. And I went in, and I met with Dan Rosen, and I asked him one question. I said, are you completely satisfied with how you do movie research today and what he said to me was how can anyone be completely satisfied I said great I have this idea that I don't know how to do it I don't know if it's going to work I want to do research using the internet and I'd like to partner with you I don't want any money from you I want to parallel test absolutely every single spot that you're doing in the mall with online. Mm. And I want to do two things. I want to test the technology and the functionality of if I could pull it off. And the second thing is I want to see how the data compares. Even though at the time I knew it really wouldn't compare because we weren't getting a good sample yet. It took time to get there. But I said I want everything that you're doing so that I could keep modifying along the way by seeing the real and then having the fake that became real because we started pretending. So that was the first thing that we did. And I also said, and I want you to slam me with pretend I've been in business forever. So when you give this company that you currently use on Friday night, however many spots you give them to digit, to upload and to send to the malls and whatever, I want the same amount. I said, I won't succeed all, all the time, but I want you to give me the hardest challenge possible so that, you know... And that's what they did. So I built my entire business model on getting 20 spots on a Friday night. I had a very short window to do it, and I had to build a whole business model around doing the hardest thing possible. And not only was it video, it wasn't a 30-second TV ad. It was a two and a half minute movie trailer. Yeah. And not only was it a two and a half minute movie trailer, it was a two and a half minute movie trailer that, if God forbid, you know, got hacked on my system and sent out and people canned it, that movie wouldn't open. So the movie could close because I'm working on materials way in advance. So I got to work on totally secure, you know, really proprietary information. I had to upload and digitize, you know, overnight. I had to get sample sizes, I can't remember, 200 per trailer by Monday morning and, you know, do it all with, you know, still manage a family and juggle, you know, all these things at the same time. And, of course... I did not complete sample most of the time. You know, every weekend it was like, you know, sweating. And, you know, we we missed significantly and we kept retrofitting. But it made me build a system that secured the video and encrypting the video, even in the day that there wasn't encryption. I had to put watermarks and I did all that kind of stuff and, and look at sort of... And the game was, how do you create video quality for every... Consumer looking at it, that was equivalent regardless of connection speed. So I couldn't stream the video at the time because if you had a 288, actually there was 144. 144, yeah. So it was in the 144 mode. So I'm not really sure timing. I never remember year. But if you think about the 144, the 288, the 56. Okay, I think those are the ones I remember. Yeah,
0: those are that. And the next thing
1: I remember is. Was there a, tw- one, two, eight, a T1 line? I saw you, the,
0: you could take two 56Ks and, and tie them together yeah. somehow.
1: Yeah, okay, so, but I do remember that. So how do I create the exact same viewing quality for someone on a 288, 14 relay? Yeah. I remember watching the video downloading. Oh, it was so stressful. And it was going through a fourteen-four. The But 288 versus T1 line. So you would expect normally if you were streaming the video, the T1 line, you wouldn't have to you know, wait so long. It yeah. would pause all the time. But that solution wouldn't work because you would both be watching very different video quality. So of course, your answers would be very reflective and dependent on your video quality. So what I had to build was a downloaded version so that everyone could download, but I built custom wrappers around it to secure the content so no one could lift, steal, or manipulate images. I actually remember using those words so that you couldn't lift, steal, or manipulate images. That came back to me so many years later. And so it was an amazing process. And so I decided, don't be hard on yourself. Don't be upset when you can't do it all but learn for how to do all that. So that when it comes time to working in the CPG world, and you've got one spot to digitize, and you've got two weeks to deliver data, you're gonna just be, you know, coasting. And that's really what happened. I built a model with the hardest common denominator in the world, worked the model around that, ended up, you know, starting to balance populations, learning what worked and what didn't, how to do it right. I was always calibrating results along the way. And of course, two years later, I had the largest online movie database in the world. And, you know, and that was really, you know, what I was describing was the whole technology development of how to make it work, but it also was how I could, you know, parallel and calibrate offline data and online data and you know see the differences
0: so you're getting proof of concept at the same time
1: all the above and you know learning the business and what it took and but then there was one very other very important factor and this i learned from tony robbins tony robbins i got stuck on an airplane for for hours one night and and he's this big guy, big teeth, big hands, big feet, and he's just, like, in my state. <laughs> he really is the
0: giant within.
1: In every regard, you know. He, he became a mentor for me in, in so many miraculous ways because he takes, you know. I, he said to me, what's your biggest challenge, you know, in your industry? And I said that people are afraid of change. And, you know, people don't want to change because change is scary. He says, "Then don't use the word change, and find ways around that." I mean, he told me so many things, which is another, you know. Did
0: you walk on the fire or no?
1: <laughs> I would have, I would have for him because there were three things he taught me that I will never forget that I actually bring into business today. One, change is scary. Don't use the word, use a different word, and find ways around changing without telling people that's sort of happening. And I'll tell you what I did in the movie business by that epiphany. The second thing that he taught me was true partnerships. Is not, you know, we usually draw these circles that here's one circle, let's say it's Warner Brothers, and here was my circle, you know, of it was called Real Research when I first built it for Nielsen. So, Real Research and um, Warner Brothers. And if when I went to them and said let's partner and experiment together, you draw a circle in the and the overlapping shows partnership. He says that's not a true partnership. He says a true partnership is when you got Warner Brothers and you got real research. Let's say the real partnership is when you draw a circle above and you both have to come out and build together, trying to build something together. Yeah. And that's what Warner Brothers and I did together. We failed and we succeeded. We shared, you know, our stories, but the reward was so wonderful that we. We really pioneered online research for the movie industry as a team.
0: So here, here's, I mean, out of that, it's an amazing story. The one thing that I'm remembering, though, is how you cold-called, talked to the receptionist at Warner Brothers, got the research director or VP on the phone, and get him to take a meeting with you. That to me is an amazing one of the most one of the most amazing parts of the story. It's just getting the meeting. How did you trust? How did he? How did you get him to to trust you immediately to even have you in his office?
1: I had a lot of chutzpah, you know. And you know, one of the things that I say is there's always a yes. You can always get a yes if you ask the right question. And I think it was the question of him hearing himself saying, "Well, of course, I'm not fully satisfied." You know, so there was room to play. And what Dan Rosen says today, and also Richard Del Belso you know, who was really the, the leader at the time, Richard Del Belso and Dan Rosen were the two in research, but Richard ran the department. What Dan said got him to say yes to me was when I said to him, well, if you're not perfectly satisfied, let's play together. But by the way, I have no fucking clue what I'm doing. He said... That was when he looked at me and knew I'd be his partner in crime because I was authentic, which I was. I had, I really didn't have an idea. It was an idea that I had. But an idea is only as good as you execute and only as good as you know. And so together, we really did pioneer online research in the movie industry. We, I was able to fail and tell him I had no secrets. I was transparent. I was an open book. But the most important thing was... Every single studio. And then, of course, Sony came in second because it was so easy. What was easy was, in the movie industry, there's five studios. There was five key studios. They all need to, the, No one, you know, no one can have one up on anyone else. So all I had to do with Sony was say, hey, Warner Brothers in. That was a simple one, right? The hard part was experimenting and learning yeah. and growing and evolving and, and getting them to believe and trust together that we would share the good, bad, and the ugly. And there was great good. But there was a lot of bad and there was some horrible uglies. I had some bad Friday nights that I will never forget. And we till this day they make me smile because of how we dealt with them. But at the moment they weren't they were they really were hard very ugly. But the weirdest thing was the guy that really had the monopoly, the company was called NRG, it's now it got acquired by Nielsen. Which is very interesting because I built the first thing for Nielsen that didn't have NRG at the time. So I built real research underneath the umbrella of Nielsen. I left. When I left, they bought NRG. Right. So NRG never had a competitor day in their life. And the studios had all signed exclusive contracts with NRG, that that NRG was their exclusive movie research business. And Joe Farrell, who truly was a, a genius and the godfather, in my opinion, of movie research, he pioneered it. He never had any competitor the day in his life and he was the godfather of most of the studio chief's kids and he had he was like the he was called the the dog whisperer because he would tell studios you know what movies were opening went to because he had all the information he did tracking and he did you know we always said there was three legs at the stool movie screenings um, testing the content TV and trailer and screening uh, tracking so tracking screening and, and copy testing yeah. or content testing with the three things he he had all that information, so imagine the power that he had Because if two movies were going to open next to each other That were both very similar He could say, I might, he might not want to open that weekend He would not, you know So no one would mess with him Because he had exclusive contracts And it was written in studio contracts NRG is the exclusive market research, you know, vendor And then here I come So how are they going to experiment with me? That's a roadblock That's a roadblock Oh, no. I mean, that's, like, so screwed up. And who the hell signs exclusive co- contracts like that? But there was no company looming, so no studio care, and they were very happy with the data they were getting because that's what they had. And I said, there's always a yes, right? There's always a way around. So we looked at the contract, and lo and behold, I was doing online research. The exclusivity was for mall research. The exclusivity was, he has an exclusivity in mall research. So here I'm coming in with online research. So that was the first obstacle we overcame, by saying it's online research. So, But he hated, he, Joe Farrell, when I started coming in, even though I was a little little dog and I had no, you know, he had 100% market share, I had zero, right, except experimenting. Anytime he would, you know, the studios were still a little nervous about him finding out that they are experimenting with me. So anytime he would be on the lot, I'm not even talking about in a building, or on a floor, or in an office, on the lot of the studio. If he was going to be on the lot, they would cancel a meeting with me. And I would sign in also as Jane Doe, because no one wanted him to know that they were experimenting. So not only did they not want people to know, the research director also took a lot of chance of working with online data. And a big epiphany was, and I still today say this, you can't throw out the baby until Wait, you should never throw out a baby. Take that and expression <clears throat> back. Baby with the bathwater. You
0: usually get arrested when you throw out babies. There's laws now. Uh, uh,
1: don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. But I hate that expression, so I'm not going to use that expression. But I told don't change to online research, because first of all, we don't even know that it's good yet. Yeah. And I said, and all of your producers and directors are so used to getting you know, NRG data the way it is, you can't just march in and have a new film with online research, because we don't know what it means. I said, so I have an idea. I said, keep doing mall research. And let's keep paralleling. And since the scores don't calibrate right now, don't go in to your meetings with the scores. But I said, what is the thing that the online, the Internet today gives us? It gave us really rich verbatims. So when we would say, you know, what scenes do you like? we, We would get these paragraph descriptions of what moviegoers loved or hated. And they would put capital, you know, letters and bold and exclamation. I remember exclamation points up the wazoo when they wanted to give us a description versus imagining them all, a little old lady stopping you, writing, scribbling down on a piece of paper. And when it, and when it's a tick, 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 fine. But what about when it's an open end? Their hand is tired. They're not going to sit and write these magnificent expressions, right? And
0: people don't reflect as much when they're talking to somebody versus when they're thinking it, about it a lot.
1: It was so beautiful, the, Verbatim testimony, and that was the richness that we really could go in with because there was no norms, we didn't have to calibrate. And so I said, Let's just put the online verbatims into your mall research. Not saying it's you know, don't say it's from us, I only credit whatever, just start sharing some of those aha's, right? They started doing that, and next thing you knew the producers and directors where is that coming from we're getting they say, oh from online research that we're doing and then they started saying oh I want that online stuff and then they started doing more and more and more and of course several years later we were doing probably 60% market share of movie research yeah. and now the whole industry is online and and uh, you know it's it's really been an amazing story so
0: Nielsen had real research and then what was the next step sort of company wise
1: what happened was I built real research for Nielsen uh, but it wasn't in the movie business It was really just pioneering online. And after I pioneered the movie research, it was easy for me to go to Procter & Gamble and say, hey, I can test, you know, content online. I've been doing two and a half minutes in a secure fashion, doing 30 seconds is cake, and I can deliver data within 48 hours. In, you know, real-time fashion, I got the whole system down because I learned doing it the hardest way. And Procter was amazing. Um, We called it ETV at the time, and we pioneered testing tv ads on the internet and it was a woman there you know and I always say it's not about the company it's about finding your champion of change and the champion of change was a woman named Suki Wasserman her name today is Suki Kotler she got married who I will give credit for so many things to as well as Dan Rosen and Richard Del Belso and Sony Dwight Keynes and a couple of people that just believed and took chances because by the way failure is not okay in a big corporation And they took a risk because it was where their heart was and their passion was, and that's really what it takes. And this, Suki Wasserman, not a very senior-level person at Procter & Gamble, and you know Procter & Gamble is not easy to break through in research, and I remember meeting with her, showing her, and she says, you know, Shelly, I will never really be visible within Procter in a very significant way just doing what I do. I'm going to take a chance. I love this. Let's go. And we called it ETV. Doing electronic TV testing, and we started doing it. And I had a meeting, I remember once, with 100 brands, 100 people, all the senior people, and we pioneered, you know, even at Proctor, working with their brands, testing all these things, and then we migrated into doing, you know, 3D concept evaluation and, you know, really using this whole digital platform to be able to engage with with people in different ways than just in sort of a, a one-dimensional kind of world. And, you know, it was really a very exciting time.
0: So uh, what was the the group you put together back in probably now the late 90s? P&G was part of it. Uh, it was an industry group. John Nardone was part of it.
1: Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I
0: only mentioned John because I worked for him at Motivedia. Media. Oh.
2: yeah.
1: So, I really believe that you can never do anything by yourself. Anyone that believes that they are, you know, the solo, you know, uh, even pioneer of anything is kidding themselves. It's, it's having partners in crime that believe together and that you can play off each other. And that's how magic happens. And uh, when I... It's such a long story. So... I was becoming a specialist in thirty-second spots, traditional, right? So I, my my years, I think, are all messed up. I think I'm getting all my years wrong. But I one day was on an airplane, and I see this guy with white hair doing a demonstration on the airplane. He's standing up, and he's kind of showing people how this product works, and you know what it does, and you can buy it for three easy payments of. You know, twenty nine ninety nine. It's like
0: an airplane infomercial
1: Well, he then The plane, they say, please take your seats Sit down, and lo and behold Who's this nut sitting next to? Me I don't know who he is He was really engaging But who the hell would stand up on a plane and do this He's like a spokesman on the plane, I have no idea He says, I said, who, I said, who are you? He says, oh, I'm Tony Hoffman. I said, he says, and I said, what were you doing? He says, I was doing an infomercial. I create infomercials. I said, what's an infomercial? This is how many years ago. And he says, well, it's products that don't have, you know, they're not in retail that you can buy online. And, you know, you do demonstrations and and they're half an hour sort of programming with, you know, three um, pods of eight-minute regurgitated information to get people to buy things, you know, that you can't buy anywhere else. I said, oh, my God, that is fascinating that you get to have a program to sell something. So I came back to ASI, to the office, and I said, well, I want to create a way for brands to do infomercials. How great would it be for brands to be able to tell a story in a whole new way? Well infomercials took six months to produce, upwards in the can is six months, and upwards of $600,000 if you're going to do a high glossy one and whatever. And brands aren't that It's exciting. What kind of story could you tell for 30 minutes? So I decided, if I'm going to really get into this business, I need to learn. But what I loved about the infomercial was not only that it was 30 minutes to really engage people, even though at the time I had no idea what that really was, but 30 seconds isn't a very long time. What if you had 30 minutes? Um... But what I loved was the 800 call to action. So, you know, he says, and then you sell something, you call to action, and you get people. I said, I love this for database building, because if brands could tell a story and then have an 800 call to action, it doesn't have to be to sell the brand, because you could buy that in the store, but it could be to get this database of people. So I liked this idea. But before I could bring it to my brands, I had to learn about it. So I became the infomercial queen. And I learned from all the lazy slicer, dicer, hair extender, you know, Romper Peel's and Tony Hoffman's and Guthrie Rankers. I worked on every single infomercial. I knew nothing about the infomercial business. It was, let's play again, that Tony Hoffman was one of my mentors teaching me direct response and how you could do a program, and the better your program, the more you get someone to pick up your phone and call.
0: What's it with you sitting on airplanes with a guy's named Tony? Because you got Tony Rob, Tony Hoffman, Tony Robbins, any other Tony? Tony Romo? Well, at Are least they weren't all at the same time. Yeah, Tony Soprano? At
1: least they weren't all the same It was really amazing, because the infomercial guys, here's, I'm I'm a researcher, 800 number research, you don't need it, because, and and I used to come to them saying, I'm going to do some research. They said, we don't need research. We have the 800 number call to action to know how successful we are. When we get a lot of calls, we know we're good, and when we don't, I said, yeah, but how do you know if your program wasn't better, you could get more calls? I said, so let's test your shows. And I said, how do you know that you're putting the call to action in the right place in your show? Because maybe you're waiting too long. Maybe after the first eight minutes, you know, or within the eight minutes, you know, your call to action doesn't come and they get bored. Let's figure out the right places to put the call to action. So I became the infomercial queen and I worked on every single DRTV short form, you know, um, infomercial that you could imagine. Once I did that, I brought it to the brands. And I said to the brands, hey, we have this really big opportunity to go beyond 30-second spots to 30-minute programming and, you know, call to action, we could build databases. And so we started doing that, and I started doing dual-dial testing. Where should you put it? I worked on every branded infomercial you could imagine, from car infomercials to it to the best one, a story commercial on bringing home computers. Apple, it was for Apple. It was called... The martinettis or something and it was like a little soap opera it was talking about how computing was going to be important and how a family can use a computer they were all using it together it was and then i worked on so i know the year on this one it was 1998 i was working on this it was for windows 98 it was the launch of windows 98 and i was on microsoft campus and we were going to launch an infomercial for Windows 98. They decided it was a perfect vehicle to do an infomercial. I'm on campus and two big ideas happened that day. One big idea was, you know, infomercials you can't buy program time. So it's, you just flip the channel, if you're up at 3 in the morning, you know, as an insomniac, you have to find the channel, and that was like channel 200, you know, way out there on the the radar screen, right? So what they decided to do was called roadblocking. They roadblocked, meaning they bought every, you know, on Wednesday, every program at 8 o'clock, whatever, so they could list it as a channel. They could list it as a program, so they listed it as a program. And the second thing they did that was genius was Bill Gates decided that he would do a commercial inside of his infomercial. And he did a commercial for Coca-Cola. And he said to Coca-Cola, I will give you one one shot to take this thing, and I remember Bill going to the Coke machine and pounding on it, and they did a 30-second spot inside of their infomercial, which was genius. So that was a a game-changer at the time, and Apple also was a game-changer, that they actually took three eight-minute pods, but they turned it into a story instead of just product information. And then, it was that aha moment. It was an aha moment where I was sleeping. I, I dream in pictures, so I only think at three in the morning, where I said, well, that's crazy. Why are we spending six hundred thousand dollars to produce these things with six months in the can when this internet thing pops up and we can do the same kind of story in 200 pages you know i let me help these brands migrate now to the internet and that's when I started working on all these you know, websites and doing usability tests and you know what people liked and what people didn't like and all that kind of stuff. But then I thought advertising. Everyone started, marketers started advertising when we started to migrate to other people's content sites. And that's when I had to build this consortium. So it was a long-winded story of how evolution happened. But I said, if we all do this independently, we're never going to create new models because there was no advertising model on the internet. And so I invited 10 non-competitive companies together. Procter, Coca-Cola, Levi's, IBM, uh, General Motors, um, Visa, uh, Kraft, Eminem, Mars. Did I say 10?
0: You said 10. We're not going to count,
1: though. Okay, good. Don't count. And I decided that I'm going to invite the top three people inside of each of those organizations, people in charge of decision makers, from research to marketing to media, to meet every single month. And we were going to talk about how to create an advertising model on the internet. And so they all joined. I said, I want 100,000 each, because if you don't have skin in the game, no one really takes it seriously. And I said, and I want each company has to give me 10 different online ads. Skyscraper, interstitial, split screen, banner, interactive banner, you know whatever. And we're going to test them all, see what works and see what doesn't work. You know what the problem was? Every website at the time A banner ad would be a different size on different sites.
0: There were no standards.
1: There were no standards. But that was a problem. And we came up with this comment, which was, well, that's not going to work. Because we don't buy a 30-second spot on CBS and a 32-second spot on NBC and a 28-second spot. on. We need to be able to do a global buy. So that's when the IAB popped up. We said, we need standards. We said, to all these content sites. We said, we're not going to tell you how many you need, but we want you to create a, a, a trade association that you're going to create standards across the units, so that Proctor can do a global ad. You know, when, if they're going to do a banner by across websites, it could be standard, so they don't have to keep training the format. So this group was so important, and we shared um, big picture things, not you know proprietary. Yeah. But it was the most amazing thing because it was where magic and love happened. It was where true partnership happened. People's badges came off. It wasn't what company you worked for. It was that we were pioneering a new way of doing things together and sharing. And we worked our butts off. By day, we worked from 8 in the morning till 8 o'clock at night. But then at night... We got to know each other. It was trust, and it was relationships. And, and you know, till this day, so it was, I don't remember what year. 98,
0: 99. Any
1: one of those people in that group, there were 50 of us, have all stayed connected. They all have become friends. They've all done magical things. You know, Pete Blackshaw will say it encouraged him. To to know his voice matters and his opinions count and he should always be curious and discovering and asking new questions Because you'll never make things happen if you don't you know or John Nardone and Moda Media You know it was when you know we were testing things, you know, like how can you have this? section you know, in anything you do, like you know, a five-page website where everyone has access, but you can have a private section, and that's when we came up with the refrigerator freezer. I think it was for a beer company. For Zima.
0: For, Zima. for Zima, absolutely. The Zima Interactive Fridge. We're having a Mota Media 25th anniversary in a few weeks.
1: You know, I would love to have a consortium one, and I would love for you to take quotes from people of not just what happened, from how we pioneered standards together. And actually, the government called us and told us we were collusionary. I mean, we were making a big difference. And then the IB formed and took over, and we could stop. It was awesome. But the impact it had on every individual in that group that became a family, realizing that change only happens also when you can do it together and enact it, and we were all raising our hands to say it's up to us and we would fight and we were big we became one big family and it was amazing
0: I mean so a few themes I mean you when I think about this story it's well first of all it's chutzpah do I have that right because I can't I don't know if I can do it as chutzpah but it's the sense that if I don't do it who's going to do it and it's a sense that I can't do it alone so let me bring some a great group of people together so let's cut to you, you've left ASI you've built this other company this other tool no, that Nielsen. at Nielsen and from Nielsen it, it goes to was it iFilm?
1: what happened then was I was at Nielsen um, but it, the internet was still like you know Nielsen was even then a giant company and I was a little tiny blip on the radar screen And, you know, it wasn't like people were pouring money in. And I was way ahead of the curve on online. But Nielsen wanted me to walk, and I needed to run. I needed to do so many other things, but I was so far ahead of everyone that walking was fine for everyone else, but it wasn't okay for me. And it was a hard moment because, you know, Nielsen was very supportive. And by the way, ASI was very supportive, too. You know, they they knew I needed to, to follow my heart. And I woke up one day and said, you know, I need to run because I need to build the next part of it. I can't wait for someone to give me permission. It was sort of like that same thing. I couldn't wait. The same thing that happened to me at ASI, I couldn't wait for the time to be right because when was that going to be? I didn't know. And the same thing at Nielsen, I couldn't wait for someone to give me permission. I needed to take permission. Which is what I did. So I went in and I said, I gotta go. I need to go to a dot com. I need to be in an incubator mindset because I'm in a traditional setting and I don't have like minded people around me that, that that understand me. I'm not trying to understand myself, but I don't want permission. And I left everything behind. Everything. Including, I walked out the
0: door. Including your technology, your panel, the way you do the panel. Did the kid get his million bucks?
1: Oh yeah. He got it the day I signed with Nielsen. But the interesting thing is, I actually signed, when I was at Nielsen, an exclusive deal with one of the sample companies for Nielsen. So when I left, I signed myself out. I couldn't even do a deal with that, which was actually pretty funny. And as it turns out, when I started my new company, I was doing more business in the new thing. And that other company came back saying, why don't we want to reevaluate, you know? But it bothered me. Well, I appreciated the exclusivity and that they were going to respect it, but they actually, when the exclusivity ended, you know, at the time, it was before I started, you know, they were banking on the big guy versus, you know, really the power of passion yeah. and, you know, uh, guts. But when I joined iFilm, I remember going with nothing. I didn't bring technology and but... When I first built the first online system and this is sort of why I left because Nielsen it was what I built in my basement was what I was still using a couple years later. I never was I didn't have budget to start from scratch which is at some point when you're starting to be really successful doing a lot of work you need to build and that's why I had to go because it was going to break one day and I didn't know when who was going to give me money at Nielsen and I was getting nervous. So when I showed up at ifilm.com, I said to them, I came with nothing. I have to start from scratch. And so what's the expression again? Necessity?
0: Mother of invention. or Frank Zappa and the mothers of invention. One or the other.
1: Okay, well, let's take that one now because it's a new expression. We used the other one already. And have anything. So I feel like building again because now technology started happening. And I said, I want to buy off the shelf. So I did. I, I took off the shelf. I think it was SPSS. I don't remember. I took off-the-shelf solutions and built the whole thing around that as an off-the-shelf. I didn't custom anything. And I started adding pieces of tools that were existing, but I repackaged in different ways. And I built within a dot-com organization. And it was interesting because film was, you know, it's sort of like it was iTunes then, but it was ahead of its time. And no one thought that I would build a very successful research business within iTunes, within, uh, within iFilm, and iFilm had like a ton of money that they got when they did their deal, but lo and behold, we became their sugar mama, like, you know, the little online research business started taking off, and it started getting validated, the marketplace was really there, so we were a little ahead of the curve when we built it, but then it was right for the picking, and we started doing phenomenal business, and... This little research person started supporting, you know, I yeah. and it was it was really you know exciting. And, and so, and what
0: happens think, next?
1: And what I got from I Film was some amazing technology people. I'd never had that kind of you know young, spirited minds around me. It inspired me and and motivated me. So I loved. What I got from iFilm was some really wonderful technology people and this entrepreneurial spirit. I didn't know I was an entrepreneur until I started realizing. You know, you go to work every day with dust on the floor, and and, he, and that became home, and I loved it. You know, it was it was really a great place to 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 formulate those those days of you know feeling like an entrepreneur.
0: So iFilm, and then from iFilm, you you're you're their sugar mama,
1: okay.
0: and what happens next, you?
1: And then. Um, we sold iFilm's shares to private equity, to mm-hmm. Bob Pittman and to Strauss Zelnick. Right. And then... Those were the days I learned EBITDA. I learned how to be a businesswoman. You know, I used to build from my heart, and it all came. You know, someone said, you know, we need a business plan from you, when I went to Nielsen. And I said, how am I supposed to build a business plan? What I what I built doesn't exist, so I don't have any, I have no idea what's going to be. And I said, if I make your business plan, I'm going to make shit up. I'm happy to, but... You know, so I did make shit up, and of course, I'm so competitive, I had to beat the shit that I made up, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so
1: then, when I came to VC management, I I didn't even know what EBITDA was. I mean, you know, that's not a world I ever played, and I was always doing quite well, and we made a lot of money, and I made a lot of profit for everybody, and everyone was really happy, but I didn't know what EBITDA was. And so I really learned how to be a very seasoned business executive yeah. from Bob Pittman and from Strauss Elnick. And, and, you know, Strauss always talks about how, you know, he speaks Shelleyisms now and you know, because he was at Harvard, you know, kinda muckety muck, and I said I speak, you know, Ebot. So I <laughs> and you know, so I, I really have gained so much learning and experience and knowledge. Um, from every chapter of my life, and they've all been very spicy chapters.
0: So let, let's come full circle, and then I have another question. But So you were at ASI. You said you've got this great idea. Uh, I want to do this? They said recognize that it's a good idea, but their path had to go somewhere else. You're now uh, iFilm. You bought the, the shares out of iFilm with Bob Pittman and Strauss Selmick. You've grown a company called OTX Research? OTX. OTX. Um, what was that, the, the last stage of OTX Research was what?
1: So, um, this was actually a big learning curve too because, so I became the pioneer in online research for all the industries, built the online ecosystem, you know, great. Started working in all verticals from movie to television to package goods to financial services to automotive we were doing about um, Bob and Strauss and I come for about five years and I remember having a strategic moment decision you know where the road could go either way and many members of the board believed that OTX should stay a data collect an online data collection data reporting company and very few of us believed it should be a full-service research company because we were powering everybody and no, right. really, and bought, uh, some members of the board thought we should stay data collection, and we'd have. But I said, well, we're never. We're always going to be a commodity. We should. We should always. You know, I, I wanted to become a full service, so we made that moment of truth. We lost a lot of business because of it, and then we ended up gaining a lot of business because we became an online research business. You know, and really, you know, building a whole you now research group around it. So it wasn't just technologists and all that. We had to, you know, move into that level and. You know, we were the fastest growing research company year after year. We started, gener- you know, we ended up generating about $60 million in revenue very profitably. Uh, but we were a little boutique. I mean, you know, even though we were a global company that could push the buttons and do research in any country, we didn't have those legs. And, and what was starting to happen, clear to me after, you know, five years is, you know, I couldn't keep growing organically. We had to go global.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, so the proctors and the cokes and the crafts of the world thought we were, the, you know cute this cute little company with you know really big ideas and a lot of chutzpah but if they're really gonna put their money in us we had to go Shirley, global. Do you
2: mind if I move these over no, here no, I got
1: i you We had to really go global. And you know when it's your baby you want the best for it. You know I'm not I wasn't sure I mean I, I, I had no idea. I didn't know that I could go back to a big company and and be dependent on decisions again. But I did not think about myself. I thought about my company and what was the right thing for OTX that was growing so beautifully. But if I couldn't go global, I didn't think we could go to the next level. Or if I didn't have money investing and in going global, even though I didn't know how to do that, I didn't think we, we would succeed. So I really believed we needed a global you know, family. I needed a family to put you know, OTX in that could take it to where it really should go. But that came with challenges because my head was struggling with it. Like, what was so magical and beautiful was this cultural gem that um, lifestyle company so engaged with our clients, hands on, and you know, innovating every second. And we would scream ideas over each other. And even when we got bigger, I mean, you know, I had 215 employees, I think, you know, uh, before we sold. And every single Christmas, between Christmas and New Year's, I would call every one of those employees and wish them a happy. New New year or merry christmas and and i love knowing my employees so people always say you know when you get bigger you, you lose it it was really important to me for all of us to stay connected even though we were now in multiple cities and you know the whole nine yards and i got to talk to people's mothers and grandparents and aunts and every year they would expect my call and sometimes they would try to beat me and call me and it, it was a lot of time that i spent doing that but the value for me personally was invaluable. It was really important. And so it was a it was a challenge for me. And a lot of my team did not want to be sold. They loved that. But what they didn't know was I was afraid that if we waited another year without, you know, being able I mean we might go down. We should we should go while we're strong and on a high. You should always go when you know you got something good. And and so I met with a lot of different global companies and you know and it's always a challenge because you can't you know I still have yet to find, you know, a big organization truly embrace a smaller boutique incubator and see how you can keep them separate but right. the same and benefit from the culture and let the little company benefit from the big one, you know, especially because we were very competitive to big ones. So it was a cash-22. It's always a choice. Um, but you do what's the right thing for your child. And it was the right thing. And, you know, so we sold to Ipsos. And, you know, it was... Now, wait,
0: Ipsos, they bought another company you mentioned earlier. No, no? not No, earlier than that. ASI. They bought ASI.
1: (laughs) I know, I came home. It was full circle. But you know, one thing I didn't say. When it was time for me to go, I didn't leave ASI because they said, no, we can't do it. Actually, what they said was, it's a really great idea, but we can't invest the money. Because I needed a million dollars, remember? They couldn't give me the million to do it. I think it was... But they said, let's partner with Nielsen. Like, we... Thought about that, and we had meetings to do that. Like we, we really did want to make it work. I think it was before the acquisition. I can't remember. But the truth is, we couldn't figure out the structure of how to. You can't yeah. have two people in competitive yeah. arenas. But it was a whole other lesson. But I don't remember how that all happened. But anyways.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, what's nice is that I mean, it came full circle. It. It came full circle. It came full
1: circle. It came full circle. It's a story. Um, it's Beshared. I mean, we say you It's. It was meant to be. It was so bizarre, that that is. Truly, where I started my career, while I was at Video Storyboards before ASI, um, and today those three people that were in the room were <coughs> inspirations: Jerry Liebman and Bill Moulton and Jim Spade, major players in the industry today. Um, and we're all still great friends today, you know, and we all work together happily. And so that was the ASI days, and then Ipsos acquired ASI, and here I am, home and it is uh, and actually what's the other strange coincidence is not only did I you know was I at ASI when you know I had that moment of truth and then I sold to Ipsos that acquired ASI but when I built OTX ASI was one of my first clients so I mean on so many levels it was uh, very interesting
0: what was a young Shelley's Alice like so what, what were you like in high school
1: people ask me that question quite a bit and I've bumped into a lot of people in high school that that do tell me I was um, confident. I don't remember that. Like I did not think I'd be uh, a CEO, or I really thought I'd be PTA president. I really thought I'd be a, a, a full time homemaker. Where, where did you grow my mom was up? Where did you grow up? In Los up? Angeles.
0: And what were your parents like? What was your What did your father do? What did your mother do?
1: My father's cardiologist. My mother. Um, When I was growing up was a full-time homemaker and but a fundraiser and involved in the school and the PTA and always was There when we needed her and making dinner and doing all those things, but busy She was always busy doing wonderful things and I'm one of four girls and you know And so I I really never Thought that I would be what I am today. I really didn't. It wasn't in. My what did
0: you want to be, Sophie? If you, if, you know, taking back to when you were in high school, when, when you were starting off in college, what did you want to do? What was your major? What did you?
1: In high school, I was. I was. Uh, I. I lived life. I. I was.
0: Get uh, a zest for living.
1: I, I was homecoming queen. You know, I was very popular. I had a lot of friends. I was a tennis player. Um, I loved just. I knew how to do okay in school by finding the right kind of classes. And I I had a lot of friends, and I I loved learning from people around me and just having life experiences. Like, I just remember enjoying life. I was a great kid. You know, I didn't break a lot of rules that were bad. I broke rules, but not bad rules. Like, we'd play hooky and go to the beach and, you know. I was a good kid, you know. Um, But I was as curious and, you know, I I love meeting people and knowing the dynamics, right? And then in college I always, Which was where? Where'd you go? I went to Columbia. I went to Barnard, which was part of Columbia. Yeah. I lived on Columbia campus. I loved college, not because I loved learning. And I only loved the classes that interested me. I wasn't you would never find me in a library. Ever. I would know how to unless you're
0: at Wharton lecturing MBAs. Well that's in the library in the kids section.
1: Yeah. I hated the library. You would never find me in the library, unless it was the business or law library where there was, like, you know, the good guys that meet, right? You're scouting
0: out. Yeah. yeah, I got you.
1: Right you did football. your own
0: market research.
1: But I, uh, I loved my time at Columbia, and I didn't realize what I loved so much about it, because every single day... I would meet a new, fascinating person—someone that was on mainframe computers and a genius—and that was actually a girlfriend of mine, Erica. And another friend of mine that had the most beautiful, magical voice in the whole world that just would resonate in the hallways of the dorms. Or this guy Ed that would play the piano like a, a con- you know, a concerto like a, you know, a concert pianist. And and another orator that would stand and do poetry on the outside and. I had such a mixture of amazing friends that I didn't realize how much I appreciated the differences they brought to the table, you know? And so I, I had a wonderful time, and I always felt the need, though, to work, even though I didn't have to work. I was very blessed and fortunate growing up, but I would scoop tuna fish in the cafeteria, you know, the, the, the cafe, it wasn't the cafeteria. Or I would, you know, I always felt the need to keep myself busy doing things, um, and then I fell into um, research. Yeah, I would yeah. never have posted research because I didn't even know what research was. Did you like meeting them? Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic, sure. right? A lot of
2: good fun stuff to think about, and I'll be in touch with them, and I'll see you in a few weeks then,
1: right? Okay, so keep me posted on what, what you decide on that.
2: Okay.
1: Okay, thank you. So... I fell into it because I would never have chosen it. It was an ad on a bulletin board. I just kind of thought I had time, free time, so let me just go look for a job. And I was interested in psychology, right? And so I thought maybe I'll be a psychiatrist or a psychologist because I liked people and learning about what made them tick. And, you know, I love watching people and figuring out the dynamics and figuring out the story about them without knowing. And, you know, I love watching people. And I saw this thing and I thought it was an ad agency. (laughs) I thought, how cool. And it was called Video Storyboards. And I thought they make ads or something, I don't know. And so I got myself all dressed up in a suit and I went to take this train to go to 27th and and Lexington or whatever where the job was. And my handbag fell into the train thing. Oh my God! I'm going to be late this interview. What am I going to do? And I remember thinking, Well, I got to get my purse before the train. And so I took the you know, <clears throat> nice newsstand thing, that right. long stick, and I went up, like, on the floor, digging it up, and I'm ripping my stockings, and I'm like a mess. I thought, Oh, I'm this young college kid, I look so good in a nice suit, and I'm all done, and then I show up disheveled at this meeting. And I go to this company called Video Storyboards, and I go to the sixth floor of this building. And I walk in. I'm a little nervous. I don't even know what a job is, right? You know, a college kid. And there's these three girls sitting around, eating frozen yogurt, gossiping, talking about, you know, nothing that had to do with work. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I could do this. <laughs> this is a great. People get paid for this. This is awesome. I want this job, right? As, no
0: tuna fish involved.
1: No tuna, I'm thinking this is... Awesome. So I'm talking to Dan, and then the boss comes out, and his name is Dave Vadera. He's this mm-hmm. little Indian guy wearing brown corduroys and red socks and wallabies, and he says, "Shelly, you know, please come in." And I meet with him, and he was just so cool, you know. And he had this jar. I'll never forget my first moment of really, not only how he looked, I didn't even think he was successful. He doesn't. He didn't operate that. He had this jar on his desk called "Brilliant Ideas." And I said to him, before he could even interview me, I started interviewing him. I said, what is that? What's the jar for? He says, oh, whenever someone in the office has a, a, an idea, they put it in this jar. And every week, we sit, we pull them all out, we talk about them, and we make shit happen. I said, then I'm going to work here. He says, I haven't even interviewed you yet. I said, but this is where I belong. I'm going to work for you. And I did. And I worked for him for seven years, I think. Yeah. And... He inspired me in so many ways that it's a whole other you know, conversation. But he taught me so many things today that I do that I didn't even know why you do things that you know, and you know the the impact. And as it turns out, of those three women, one is Maggie Taylor, who runs um, a DRI. You know, we, we really like a little tiny five-person shop where magic, big ideas, you know, came to life.
0: The one thing that struck me with that with that story. You said you had a blessed life. You didn't need to work. You didn't have to work. Yet, you wound up becoming not only... I mean, you started a business that was sold. I mean, you were very successful in spite of the fact that you didn't really need to be. Is that what separates the true successes in life from from not? I mean, I, I even don't even know how to ask
1: that question. No, you know what separates it passion when you have that idea because when I met my husband, so my mother was always um, a full-time homemaker, a fundraiser, whatever. Then later, she ended up doing, you know, political jobs and, you know, things like that. And she's like a major muckety-muck. But she always was a very strong presence in the community and or in the school and anything she did. She did everything, you know, with passion and and momentum. Um, But... And no matter how busy my mother was, she found time for everything. So she could be, you know, on television, on radio, on whatever, being interviewed for the, you know, with the government or, you know, policy or whatever later in life. And yet she would still show up with her trunk full of food to fill my refrigerator, spend time with the kids, get on the floor, you know, and she was the multitasking queen, and she did everything beautifully. And whether she was stressed or not, you never knew it. But... When I was working, I always thought, it's just a job until I get married. You know? I didn't think I would be a career person. That wasn't anything yeah. in my, my rule book. And when I met my husband, who's a surgeon, his mother, single parent, was, you know, owned a clothing stores so and was working. And my husband said when we were having this, when we were dating, he said, so when, when we, you get married and have kids, what are you going to do? Like, you know. I said, I'm going to be a full-time mom, so I can be home and take care of the kids. And he said to me, you know, I don't think you're the type. I think you, but I wasn't what I... I this have, is your mother-in-law saying this No, to you? this is my husband. Your husband, okay. This is, are you sure you, that's going to be okay for you? And he was such a cool guy because his mother always worked, so it wasn't like he needed me to be home, you know? It was like he didn't really know about someone like that. He said, I think you're going to want to have a career, but I... No commitment whatsoever. But it was only when I discovered my passion for building the Internet, my whole world changed. It was something that I was building every day. Every day became a, a new day for me because I was creating, and I was I was the ups and downs and the learnings. and the, It was so exciting that I didn't know any different after that. And, you know, I, I also have taught myself that no one can make your bed You. No one can tell you to be great at what you do. It has to come from within. You have to love what you do. You have to want to do it. You have to find ways to make it fun. Like I used to play games with myself on how to, you know, compete with myself. I don't compete with that, I compete with me. You know, when I when I when I learned how to be in business development from another mentor of mine, Jackie Pinkowitz at ASI, she taught me business development. She taught me how to really create relationships with people that I never knew. And she doesn't even realize how much she taught me. One day I would love to tell each of these mentors of mine.
2: What they taught me.
0: What's stopping you from doing it?
2: Are they still around?
1: Jackie taught me how to engage clients, and I became the master of call calling. But she used to say to me, You have to figure out how to get in the door, because if you would have called, She used to say to you know, you have to call, call all these people, find out who they are. Well, it took me forever to get the name of the research director because no one is going to give you a name from, you know, the operator. And so I then decided, okay, I'm going to get every name that I get, right? So that was my game. How, every call I make, I'm going to end up with this name of the research director. Well, then the next game is when well, you get the research director, you then have to get through the assistant, right? Yeah i got to get to the assistant, then my game was I'm going to get 100% of the time to the assistant, and I'm going to get the meeting. That was step two. Step then was, and I got really good at what, what it took to get the meeting. And what it takes is just being nice and knowing people. And, you know, and then when I would get the meeting, knowing how hard it was for me to get. Like when you're handed a piece of paper with the name, maybe you don't take, appreciate how much, how hard it is to get in the door. So then I decided, if it took me this long to get the name, to get in this door, there's no fucking way I'm leaving without a deal. And I would define what a deal was. A deal was either the next date on the calendar that I would get the meeting set up, it's going to be closing on whatever, because it's always a yes, or it's going to, it was always going to be something that was a yes. And I always thought, what's my yes, Right. And that is what she taught me. She really did teach me work-life balance.
0: So, how do you define work-life balance in your life today?
1: Um, that it's not predetermined. You know what I tell my kids. I love what I do, and so I think that it, it, you know, work-life balance. My family will always come first. And what I tell my kids is, it's not about work for me. I will drop anything in a heart, you know, in a heartbeat for, you know, anyone that needs me. You know especially my kids and my husband and you know my family but for any of my clients you know I you know any any of my clients became my friends and their relationships and anyone could call me and and ask me for anything and I'll always say yes and um, you know because we play off each other and so it really is um, Uh, I built a lifestyle company and culture really mattered that it wasn't about time clocks. And, you know, I I didn't want people to keep the lights on so that people would think they work late and they're hard workers, which is what I used to do. You know, it's get your work done and get out of there, but don't ever leave your, your teammates, you know, there or figure out how to play off each other and help each other. And, you know, don't miss birthdays and don't miss your kids, you know, and soccer games and football games. And, you know, live life. It's, it's just work. Um, and if you really think about it that way, you actually love what you do. And I didn't want people to stay because they had to stay. So I don't, I don't believe in contracts. You know, stay because you want to be here. And um, you know, I also think you, get, you juggle so many things in life, so that's why I have yoga classes, so that people could do a lot of things in the office during the day, so that when they get home, they can have that quality of, you know, personal life. So... I just think you spend so much time at work, you should enjoy it. And so there's a lot of, I do a lot of orientations for new employees about what our company is all about. You know, don't miss the birthdays, don't sweat the small stuff. Um, Get the heck out of here when you can, but don't leave your team hanging. Um, If you make a mistake, don't hide it because it's going to come back and bite you in the ass. Share it, we'll fix it. Don't make the same mistake twice because that's dumb. Don't make stupid mistakes, typos unacceptable. I mean, there's just lots of things that are just, you know, so basic, and don't talk behind people's backs. You're upset with someone? Tell them, because that's just not a very good culture. And I also hated, you know, people being invited to meetings based on title. So, you know, people are invited because I need the person there, right? And I used to tell people, if you're not invited to a meeting and you want to go, you're invited to any meeting that we have. But if you show up at too many meetings, I mean, you don't have enough to do. You know. Um, I also hated when people would come and bitch at me with problems. Like, don't just come and tell me your problems. I'll help you with finding solutions, but don't just come and tell me what your problem is, because why am I going to take your problems? I have my own problems. (laughs) How old are your kids right now? 16, 18, and 21.
0: So what do you tell your 21-year-olds who may or may not be about to start their career?
1: It's okay. I'll wait in the lobby. Um, Well, starting your career is no one really ever knows what what they're gonna end up doing, whoever would have known. I would never have guessed. I could never have created my career path. I made it. I I discovered it and then I made it and then I enforced the things that I liked and I never gave up even when, you know, when I was pioneering online and people told me I was crazy and there's no point and it's never gonna be this and it's never gonna be that. Didn't matter I believed. I wanted to do it. And so I tell my kids, and my son is now looking for a job, I'm like, there is no perfect job i mean no one knows what they want to do unless you're a lawyer or a doctor or you know uh an accountant other than that you know you don't you don't know where you're gonna end up i mean i never would have imagined i am where i am and when you said you know what am i most proud i'm proud of myself and i i uh i also whenever i am i get myself a present to say you go girl for myself and when I sold the company um, I shared in the success with you know many key you know employees that were instrumental in helping make it successful and what I said to all of them was I will only give you this money if you promise me that you will buy yourself something special I don't care how much you spend it could be a dollar it could be a thousand dollars it could be five hundred dollars it could be six thousand whatever it is I don't care but I want you to buy yourself something that you can say, I'm proud of myself. And you can always look at it and know it was that you did a good job. And when they all did that and they all got their checks, they all started sending me notes about what they bought. Someone bought a cuckoo clock. Someone put a down payment on a home. You know, someone bought a watch. Someone, they were things that they can then look at and say, you know, I'm proud of myself. And I think it's really important to reward yourself because you can't wait for someone else to do it. If you think you're doing a good job, you probably are. But also the opposite. Don't, don't ever not ask yourself the hard questions are, are you doing as much as you can be doing? Are you delivering your potential? Are you just being lazy because you're getting away with it? You know, you might get away with it best, but it doesn't matter what others think. It's what you think for yourself. Are you proud of yourself? Are you pushing yourself? Are you and if you really are pushing yourself and you're proud of yourself, you'll be able to do whatever you want. The sky's the limits because you're creating it.
0: I think that's a great place to end. Okay. Shelley, thank you very much.